Welcome back to We The Union. This is episode seven, and I'm your host, Daisha Benjamin. Today on the show, I am joined by two former AAAJ employees, that's Asian Americans Advancing Justice employees, and they're going to be talking about the UOP charges they filed, as well as the settlement they reached recently. But first, let's get into some news. We have two trainings coming up. Next week, we have the Understanding Your Rebate training. That'll be on April 29th at 6 p.m. And then on May 1st, we have our annual Secretary-Treasurer's training. It Both will be happening via Zoom. The Secretary-Treasurer's training will happen at 10 a.m. You can find more information about both of those trainings and how to RSVP at AFSCME36.org. That's AFSCME36.org. I also want to give a huge shout out to Leticia Munguia. Uh, she's a business rep for AFSCME District Council 36, and she recently ran to represent Assembly District 79, which is down in San Diego. Unfortunately, she came up short, but she ran an amazing campaign, and we are so proud of her. So congrats to Leticia for running an amazing campaign. All right, now let's get to the interview. So today I have two guests with me. Um, they're both with Triple A J. Um, so let's start with both of you guys introducing yourselves, please. Uh, sure. My name is Christopher Lupinig. I am an attorney based in Los Angeles, um, and I was a Scadden Fellow at uh, Asian Americans Advancing Justice Los Angeles uh, from November 2015 until November 2017, and then I stayed on board for two more years after that. I was in the impact litigation unit. Hi, my name is Yanine Senachai, and I also worked at Asian Americans Advancing Justice Los Angeles. I started working there in 2012, also with Impact Litigation Unit, mostly focusing on workers' rights. And I left around November 2019. Okay, um, so let's kind of start at the beginning of the kind of organization process. So what made you all want to organize and form a union at AAAJ? Yeah, I can take a first stab at that. Um, so it all kind of started uh, in the summer of 2017. Um, I think up until that point, you know, there had been, um, you know, fairly widespread discontent around uh, wages and promotions and job security. Um, but I think the real, and, and there were, previous discussions among line staff um, about unionizing um, that kind of uh, floundered um, for various reasons. Um, but what really galvanized the line staff um, during the summer of 2017 was um, our air conditioning system break breaking down. Um, our office building, uh, the organization owns the building in which uh, we worked. Um, and uh, there were recurring problems with health and safety issues. Um, and so the air conditioning was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back in a lot of ways. Um, our air conditioning, you know, it happened during the summer um, and we were without air conditioning for, I believe at least five weeks. Um, wow. And so uh, it got pretty uncomfortable in the building. You know, it reached upwards of like 90, 95 degrees in certain parts of the building. Um, 
And you know, some of us, including the team that Yanina and I worked on, were fortunate in that we were able to work from home for the most part. Um, but there were other teams that um, had to go into the office, um, and uh, and so it kind of we had a we started an informal group called Concerned Staff um, that summer, um, and uh, the idea, well, we had sort of talked about how can we make sure this doesn't happen again. Um, how, what kind of response do we want to get from management? Um, and we also recounted previous health and safety uh, problems that had uh, emerged in the past. So for example, there, uh, the organization previously rented out or, or had a space in the San Gabriel Valley. Um, and there was a team um, that was there and a fire broke out. Um, and uh, it seemed like the building or the space was not up to code. Um, and so they actually had to be, they had to break, they tried to break windows um, firefighters eventually had to, you know, pull up a ladder and um, rescue them. Um, and one of the people uh, that was affected or that was in, uh, that was exposed to the fire was seven months pregnant at the time. And so she had wow. to remain on bed rest for uh, the remainder of her pregnancy. Um, and so there were things like that. There were other issues as well that came up. Um, but when we talked about the air conditioning issue and what response we'd want out of management, we realized that we wanted something more permanent than just, you know, a one-time response from management that, um, and we also wanted a way to sort of develop institutional history among uh, line staff around issues like this, around like health and safety concerns. Um, and because we realized that management and the board or management in particular was not going to inform new employees um, about this history of, of, of problems. Um, and so we felt like we needed to create some sort of more permanent solution or permanent institution like uh, like a union um, to sort of uh, make sure that you know new staff uh, and all staff would have an awareness of the issues that we were facing um, and that there would be more leverage when it came to sort of um, getting a response from management and getting adequate solutions put in place. Um, but yeah, maybe union has more to add on that front. Oh, that's, that's great. Um, I'm glad you brought up the fire. I mean, there was just a long history where management demonstrated they didn't have our health um, in mind. Um, and I think that was a breaking point. I was struck by when we started organizing, I was talking to one of my uh, mentors who's a longtime unionized worker. And he asked me, what is it? Why are y'all unionizing now? Did someone get fired? Um, and I said, no, it was air conditioning. And he was just struck by how basic it was. But, but, but that worked. Like it was, it was unacceptable that people could not work in the office or that if we had to, management, management's only response was sending us recommendations for what you can do to try to prevent a heat stroke. Like they literally sent an email saying, um, you can apply a moistened towel around your neck. That was their response as opposed to, we're shutting down the office for a month until we get this fixed, instead of treating us like brats for um, wanting to work under perfect air conditioning. So yeah, strangely, that was the catalyst to our unionizing. Wow. And it's always, uh, I, I want to say surprising, but at this point, it's not surprising that, you know, organizations that 
their whole motto or mission is to provide justice to people yeah. and to help people turn around and internally just don't have the same goals in mind. And that it's, you know, it's not surprising at this point anymore, which is, is really sad to say, but wow. And so what was the organization process for you, for you guys? What was that like? Yeah. So, I mean, it took, about a year, I would say. Um, it was a pretty long um, and involved process, I would say. And, and I don't think any of us, I mean, I think some of us that were involved um, had some organizing background, but I, I certainly didn't. Um, yeah, and I was pretty involved in sort of spearheading the efforts. Um, and so, um, yeah, it was a process of sort of learning from the union and learning from others um, who had experience organizing um, how to approach the entire situation. Um, and so I guess the starting point was sort of just listing out all the people in the organization that we thought would be a part of the union, would be eligible. Um, and then, um, you know, uh, figuring out who would go talk to which person. Um, and it, you know, it was definitely um, it was definitely a iterative process. I would say that we would, you know, not just have one conversation with an individual, but would have to go back uh, to them to sort of um, answer any concerns that they might have raised in our first meeting, um, but also just confirm uh, that people's ongoing support because it did take some time for us to sort of feel ready to present our petition for voluntary recognition. Um, and so there was always the risk that, you know, even if someone said, um, I'm all for the union in one conversation that maybe several down several, several months down the line, um, uh, that they might change their minds. And I would say that for the most part, um, the line staff that we talked to um, were supportive of the idea of a union. Um, and the the biggest reason that people hesitated to support it or to say that they would vote for a union if it came down to that um, was fear of retaliation. And I'm sure that's that's common in a lot of situations. Um, and um, yeah, there, there were a handful of people that just that did think that unionizing was not a good idea. Um, I think the main line of argument that they had was sort of like, well, I like the informal structure of our organization. Um, and I, I like that there's that there's amb ambiguity and haziness around different things, because um, maybe it gives us more flexibility. Um, and but I, I would literally say that that's maybe two or three people out of, you know, 80, 90 plus people that we reached out to. Uh, for the most part, people, you know, which, meant, which is probably not surprising at a progressive uh, civil rights organization, um, people generally got it. Uh, as soon as we talked to them and it was trying to assuage their fears about retaliation that was the biggest challenge to overcome. I, I think we encountered the same kinds of themes and tactics that you're seeing around uh, the nonprofit organizing right now. Um, so even though these folks were in the majority, they were a very vocal minority. Uh, sorry, did I say minority? They were in the, in the minority, but they were very vocal. Um, so things that they would say would be, you know, unions make people lazier, or I support unions, but not at nonprofits. Um, so it was a struggle always um, 
addressing some of those arguments if we had to. Um, but yeah, for the most part, people were in favor. And I think because people saw the long history of mistreatment and lack of transparency by management. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, you're always going to find those people, right, who, who are just like, no, uh, yeah, it's, it, it, those conversations are always interesting to have. But um, so then, you know, you guys are kind of towards the end of the organizing process and you guys walk on the boss. Um, so then shortly after that, did you start to hear about the layoffs or like how did that come about? So um, no, it, um, no, it was, um, so let's see, I'm trying to get my timing correct. So we, sub we submitted our petition for voluntary recognition um, in April of 2018, I believe. Um, and there was an initial dispute or there were disputes um, with management at first um, around who would get included uh, in the bargaining unit. Um, and so that took about a month to, I think, resolve. Um, but by the end of that month, um, you know, management and the board agreed to voluntarily recognize us, which was great. And we, we welcomed that, um, of course. And so then, you know, a few months after that, we started our uh, negotiations for the, our first, you know, bargain or our, our first contract with the organization. Um, and, you know, I think the first thing that sort of shocked us was that um, the organization retained uh, a pretty aggressive um, and maybe notorious uh, union busting lawyer to represent them uh, from the law firm of O'Melveny and Myers. Um, and you know, I think he worked pro bono for them, um, and and and, and O'Melveny still continues to represent the organization at least on the union front, um, and and so um, yeah, we started contract negotiations, and at some point, you know, I think contract negotiations went pretty slowly in general, um, but at some point, management indicated to us that they were discovering financial issues um, and um, they assured us on several occasions that layoffs were not on the table um, and they continued to do that for actually the for the entire time until we discovered that the opposite was true um, so around sometime in the spring of 2019 um, they it seemed like the board forced out the founding executive director, Stuart Quo, from his position. Um, and they replaced him uh, with uh, a woman named Celia Obaji, who uh, served as the interim executive director. Um, and uh, it seemed like, I mean, it was pretty apparent that she was brought in to sort of try to figure out what to do about the financial issues that the organization was facing. Um, but you know, in contract negotiations, they continued to sort of reassure us that they were not considering layoffs. Um, you know, different members of management were, you know, re reiterating those reassurances to individual teams. Um, and, and then in July of 2019, um, one of uh, a middle manager, um, you know, a supervisor um, had discovered, had learned that the board had met behind closed doors uh, to start thinking about layoffs, or at least to, uh, I mean, actually it's, it's not clear exactly. 
they were starting to think of layoffs at that point or if they were just moving forward with with plans that were already afoot. Um, and um, and so we started to hear uh, you know certain names that were being uh, floated uh, or that the board and management were considering for layoffs. Um, that list started to grow and grow over time. Um, and uh, but to be fair, we actually like didn't really. Uh, there were some people that were rumored to be targeted for layoffs that en ended up not getting laid off um, and, and others that were not mentioned at all that ended up getting laid off. Um, but yeah, the July of 2019 is when we first heard of the possibility of layoffs. And unfortunately it was not from management or from the board, um, but it was, I mean, essentially a leak to us. Um, so that's how we found out. Yeah, maybe to give some background about this, I mean, Asian Americans Advancing Justice got on the map because of a very famous workers' rights case um, involving um, El Monte trafficked workers. So we have staff and managers who were concerned that there were violations of labor law that were being discussed with the board meeting. And of course, the managers knew because um, and we're concerned because not, it's not just that it looks bad, but it just wasn't okay. Um, it seemed it, it seemed like some of the groups that were being targeted were um, of folks who were highly active in the organizing, but also of units that were fully funded. Um, so, you know, I, I don't, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily, um, this secretive leak of information. I mean, it, it, it was all going to come out um, and management um, decided to hide it even though we had already been recognized. So there were obligations under the NRLA for them to provide us information about their plans and they failed to do that, which is why um, Chris and some others prepared an unfair labor practice charge specifically on information requests related to the reduction in force um, plans, um, which, uh, which later we settled, which, you know, we can talk about later. Yeah, that's, a, um, that's a, a good segue. So, so you guys filed the unfair labor practice charge. And so then what was that process like? Like, how did you guys come about like, okay, we're going to go ahead and do it. And then kind of, you know, what was that process like as far as getting to the point where you did eventually settle? Chris, do you want to start with the? I think you, you, you're more familiar with the entire process, so you should go first. Yeah, so I, I think we actually drafted two unfair labor practice charges that weren't even related to the reduction in force, um, but started about um, the contract negotiations. So the, the first was the fact that management during contract negotiations unilaterally discontinued um, these uh, cost of living increases that we got every year. Um, and there, there wasn't much, um, um, I mean, that, that was fine. There was, I mean, it, it, it seemed like not a big deal to file that kind of charge. And, and eventually management did settle that charge um, with the union where they agreed to reinstate the COLA increases to current employees and those they eventually laid off. Um, the other charge that I started talking about um, Chris put it together um, was about materials prepared 
in response materials resulting from these one or two board meetings in July um, where management discussed the reductions in force because we knew that we were entitled to those documents. And one of the reasons why we really wanted them was because you know, management put together their P PR machine because they knew that the entire labor law, Asian American social justice community was watching. They had their PR machine going where we, where they said, you know, we supported the union, we voluntarily recognized you, all these concerns you're hearing, it's just, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing to it, right? It's all BS. But but what we were hearing um, about the potential dismantling of units that were active in the in the union organizing, even though they were fully funded, at least for the next year, like the two just didn't match up. So that's why we wanted um, why we wanted that. And um, so the um, so uh, we we put together that charge with the help of AFSCME's attorneys, um, and then there were the layoffs. And um, because I think it was so chaotic during um, the layoffs of 20% of staff, uh, also very traumatic. Um, by then, I think you know Chris had already left. Um, th thankfully, um, we we. I think I was in the mindset of trying to help people survive, find other jobs. Um, and so asked me, thankfully our organizers took over to file the charge related to um, a failure to uh, bargain over the effects of the, of the termination or the layoffs. Um, so those charges were filed and I believe NLRB took about a year and a half to get back to us. Um, that's actually fast in my mind because, um, you know, Chris, like we, we deal with a lot of legal issues that take like five years to resolve. But anyways, um, a year and a half later, we got a call back from the NLRB saying, um, uh, we recommend you withdraw some charges. You've already settled the COLA charge with management. Um, but if you're interested, we, you know, we, we're authorized to go ahead with this charge of failure to bargain over the effects of uh, the layoffs. And I guess that's fancy language for saying management was supposed to provide the union with information so that the union could make sure that people weren't being laid off in a discriminatory, retaliatory way in violation of the NLRA. Um, and thankfully, you know, because I think of all the work uh, we had done and all the bonding we had done over the um, year of unionizing and then trying to support each other after the massive layoff, people were responsive to the NL. Like, you know, I, I hadn't emailed or spoken to people in about a year and a half, but they got back to me and they got all this information that the NLRB wanted with respect to their wage earnings after they'd been terminated. I mean, it was a lot of paperwork the NLRB wanted, but they did. Um, and so um, the NLRB calculated back pay that was owed to all the workers um, that were laid off and, and specifically designated a group of workers that the NLRB believed um, were, were laid off unlawfully because of the failure to bargain over the effects of the layoff. So to put it simply, I think that unit, um, that group of workers were entitled to reinstatement um, because after the layoffs, their units continue to, their work units continue to operate. So it really, really seemed like something was off there. It really seemed like their rights, their unionizing rights uh, were curbed there. 
Um, but all in all, basically everyone who was laid off, whether or not they were in that special category, uh, got back pay. If they didn't got, get back pay, it was because their interim earnings were much higher um, after, um, after the layoffs. Um, and um, something that you know, a lot of people are really happy about three, the three workers who wanted reinstatement got it at their full salaries. Well, with the exception of um, a part-time worker, um, but two, two of the workers who got reinstatement were some of the highest paid workers in the agency, not just of their unit, but management um, agreed to rehire them. Um, and that was the settlement of the, of the ULP. Um, and I think one of the factors that um, that um, made the settlement happen was because this organization really cared about its reputation and didn't want to go to an NLRB trial. Um, they knew what it would be like, but nevertheless, we got reinstatement. We also got a notice posting where um, you know management had to you know post on the employee intranet and also the office. The office is closed because of COVID. But in case the the notice is about the settlement and how they had to pay these workers, and honestly, I have to emphasize the NLRB did not have to compromise on the monetary amount that they had calculated for the workers owed back weight back pay. Um, so that's pretty, like, I never, Chris and I are lawyers, I, I never get anything like that. It's not a settlement. Like, that's, that's a win-win. And I think that needs to be celebrated. And I'm, so I'm grateful for asking me for putting together that charge when, um, you know, we weren't really in the mindset of doing that. And I'm also grateful for the, you know, the former bargaining unit members for um, staying in touch with us so that we could see the settlement process through. Yeah, I agree with everything that Yanin said. Um, I think that was a really good summary of, of what happened with the ULPs. I will just, you know, provide a little bit of background as to what happened that summer of 2019. Um, that, you know, we learned about, we, we heard about the layoffs being considered. Um, and, you know, we, the union, as well as uh, middle managers who are supportive of, or at least wanted to avert any sort of layoffs, we tried everything we could uh, to sort of work with management and work with the board. Um, we tried to do it, you know, privately um, and ask them for information about um, the financial deficit and also who, what they were thinking of in terms of layoffs. Um, and and there was a lot of conversation that was attempted in terms of middle managers and line staff trying to convince the board that there were alternatives to laying people off, um, that people among the line staff and among middle managers were willing to take furloughs or, or pay cuts um, in order to make sure that no one had to lose their job entirely. Um, and all of those efforts more or less fell on deaf ears when it came to the board and management. Um, and so that's when we made the, the sort of uh, difficult decision to, to go public um, and to start a blog um, and to engage in, in uh, public picketing um, because we were kind of left with no choice, really. Um, the board and management were really stonewalling us um, in, a, in a lot of ways. And it seemed like they had, you know, before we had discovered uh, that they were thinking of layoffs, they had already decided that they were going to do layoffs if, you know, no matter what. Um, and there was nothing we could do to change their minds. Um, but, you know, as Yanin said, their approach to the entire situation, I think, um, was 
confirmed to be unlawful by you know the NLRB's charges and the fact that the NLRB was willing to move forward with a public complaint and move forward to a hearing. Um, I, I think that speaks to the confidence that the NLRB had um, in uh, the facts of, of our case um, and uh, the strength of our case on, on the union side of this. Yeah, and I, I mean, I know that this entire process was long from this before organizing to start organizing to all of this happening. Um, you know, it could be draining, not just physically, but mentally as well. So do you guys have like any regrets about this whole process? Uh, I, yeah, maybe Anine feels differently, but I can't think of any off the top of my head, really, um, because honestly, it was a huge learning experience for, I think, a lot of us. Um, none of us had, or, or yeah, no, none of us, <laughs> to the best of my knowledge, had experience uh, with union organizing or negotiating uh, a collective bargaining agreement, um, or let alone sort of confronting a board and management around layoffs. Um, and so, you know, did we do things perfectly? Uh, definitely not. You know, there are things that we could have done differently and mistakes that we made, uh, but I think it was all part of the learning process. And, and, and I, I also think that it's kind of part and parcel of the idea of unionization uh, in that unions are really about empowering workers uh, and, and part of empowerment is sort of uh, trial by fire really and um, sort of figuring things out, you know, as you're confronted with problems for the first time. Yeah, and as Chris has said before, we unionize at the right time. Like we, we, we got recognition right before management announced this massive deficit. So if we hadn't unionized, people had been laid off, we would not have been able to get people's jobs back. We would not have been able to get back pay. Um, so it's, it was a very tough experience, but it is hard to think about regret. I mean, me personally, I, I regret being that uh, idealistic, naive, workers' rights advocate, you know, telling people, we'll, we'll be protected um, from retaliation. Um, eventually, people were, but I, I wish I had seen that management was going to play hard, that everything that people in labor had warned me about our management, even though we were a longtime social justice organization, we were a racial justice organization, we got on the map for workers' rights. I mean, what, what everyone, all the people what everyone was saying about how this management was going to behave in this organizing came true. And I wish I, 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 I wish I'd seen that earlier. So I would not have been so heartbroken, but I guess, yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the, that's the evolution you go through when you're organizing yourselves. And I mean, if that's what it took for me to see really what labor management relations are like, then I'm, I'm finally there. But, but I am really grateful that in this case, the NLRB process did serve us well. Yeah, I yeah. think you hit the, oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was just gonna, you know, agree with what you mean said, but also sort of add that, uh, you know, I, I mean, I think the culture at Advancing Justice, and at least in terms of among line staff was, um, it, it, was it, it was a special place in that people actually got along pretty well, that we all had like similar values for, you know, at least among the line staff and, and some of the middle management um, and um, people socialize out of work. And, you know, many of us continue to be friends um, even after we've left the organization. Um, but, you know, I think 
one thing that I've realized now is that when people say, be careful of workplaces that sort of say, hey, we're a family, um, that's a red flag um, that, that sure, um, there can be, you know, positive aspects to a work culture that feels family-like, but at the end of the day, your employer is not your family um, and they're not gonna treat you like that. Um, and if they try to, to sort of hide behind this, this, this veil of sort of, oh, we're a family, we don't need a union, we don't, you know, we don't need anything like that, then your ears should perk up. Um, and, and that's exactly when you need a union, to be honest. Yeah, and I think a, a lot of workers around the country are hearing that exact thing right now, especially during COVID. Um, they're saying, oh, no, we're a family. Don't worry, we will protect you, this and that. And we know, it, you know, it's not true, unfortunately. But yeah, it's not true. But I was going to say that, you I mean, you hit the like the nail right on the head when you said, you know, that if you didn't have this union protecting you, that these workers would have been laid off and not gotten their job back, would not have gotten a settlement. Um, and I think that's important because a lot of people who work at these jobs, who their employer is saying, we're family, we're this. If you were, in a, if you were a family, you would, one, talk to me before you started doing, doing layoffs, um, or you would try and work with me to make sure that we can avoid those layoffs altogether. So to say, oh, we're a family, it's like, okay, no, that's not how families operate. You want to be a family, but that's not, that's not how it, a family is supposed to operate, much or less. But um, yeah, um, my last question to you guys is, what do you hope to see at AAAJ moving forward? I know you guys are no longer with them, but what do you want to see for, you know, your former coworkers who are still there? Um, any sort of changes that you were hoping for even, even during the organization process that you want to see you know, still happen? Uh, I guess I'll be honest. Um, I, I mean, I think, I think the board of directors needs to be replaced um, at the organization. Um, and I think at least several, um, several members of management need to leave the organization um, because, uh, you know, I think the reality is that we've, learned that they are not they they don't they don't actually stand behind the progressive values that the organization supposedly stands for um and you know Stuart, the founder of uh, the organization has basically admitted as much that he constructed the board of directors uh not because he was looking for um progressive-minded people um who you know valued racial justice and economic justice um, but he built a fundraising board. Um, he built a board of people with mostly corporate backgrounds um, that, you know, whether or not they truly, uh, you know, had progressive values themselves. And um, and I think we saw what results uh, when you build a board of directors for a supposedly progressive organization um, that you end up I mean, the organization ends up breaking the law, you know, um, and ends up uh, damaging its reputation um, because it it puts it uh, it can lead to really hypocritical actions uh, by the board and by management, um, and it'll show the true colors of the organization. And so, I, I think that the governance of the organization needs to be uh, completely revamped um, 
because right now the organization is a shell of itself in a lot of ways. Um, and it's certainly, um, its reputation as a progressive organization has right, rightfully been exposed as you know a lie in many ways. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think those changes need to happen. I 100% I totally agree with Chris. We're not really, I know I was celebrating over here, but we're not really at the end of our journey with Asian Americans advancing justice um, or putting things past us because we are still in the process of making sure the organization is complying with the settlement agreement. Um, as I mentioned, there was an information request about documents um, relating to um, uh, these board meetings where they discuss the reduction in force and documents resulting from that. Um, we've received some documents and I mean, they, they confirm what we already knew about the leadership of management. And I know some current employees, they like to talk about how there's new management now, we can move forward. It's like, actually, that's not true because the people who made the decision to target the most active people in the union are still there. Um, the board members are still there. And then it's it's not, as Chris has also said before, it's not an advancing justice problem. So many nonprofits within LA and even broader are made up of the same corporate people who I, I don't know how being a board member of a nonprofit helps you, but you have to you have to really support the mission. And the thing is, you know, Stuart quote recruited a fundraising board, but then the documents revealed they actually didn't do that much fundraising. So with that and the fact that they really didn't care about our values, I mean like I'll I'll, I'll give an example. Like in the memos it, it, it was revealed that the recommendations for dissolving our unit um, included um, getting rid of the paralegal because a paralegal is not crucial to the mission of having an impact litigation unit. Um, that makes absolutely no sense to anybody who litigates in civil rights or in other matters. No, so just total disrespect. We knew that they were just making stuff up, maybe what we could call pretext, just to say, we think um, the folks who are most active in the union um, are, are, are toxic and we need to get rid of them, but we're going to say these nonsensical things. These people should um, should be exposed for who they are. Maybe they already have been, but I think I think one positive thing is now that the current collective bargaining unit has these materials, they understand that management will play hard. They will be deceitful. They will lie. During the settlement process, they lied. Um, for example, um, on a Friday, they told us, you know what, we can't reinstate people. Can we just offer people uh, two months front pay? And and, and, and we rejected that. And they came back on Monday and said, okay, we're gonna reinstate people. So, so it really helps uh, with the bargaining to understand who your adversary is, that they're going to lie, that they are people who don't respect your values and, and push hard for your contract, push hard in your negotiations. Um, so, you know, I'm still um, very wary that management will continue to, um, you know, play out their hard tricks, but there really is no accountability unless you reveal the truth of what happens and people recognizes that. And I, I do, you know, I do think there needs to be major reformation with what happens in terms of the nonprofit industrial complex because this exploitation um, and then the union busting is just not acceptable. You all are a sham if you let that all happen. And that was it. Yeah. 
Just, just to mention another example from the documents that we learned, um, you know, one of the vice presidents of the organization, who's still there actually, he um, he told the the language, the Asian language uh, legal intake project um, that repeatedly that they shouldn't worry about layoffs. Um, and when we got the documents, we found out that around the same time that he was making these reassurances, he was writing up memos recommending that certain that, that a number of people from that team be laid off. Uh, and that's exactly what happened, um, that I think at least three or four people on that team uh, were laid off. Um, thankfully, two of them, um, you know, uh, as Yanin mentioned, were reinstated, um, but, you know, there were, they were blatantly lying to us. <laughs> and um, that just doesn't seem in line with the idea of, of workers' rights um, or any of the values that the organization supposedly stands for. Yeah, and I hope everybody out there who's listening to this, um, you know, takes that into account and, you know, keeps that in the back of their head whenever you go to negotiations or if you work for a nonprofit currently um, and you're currently organizing or you want to unionize, you know, always keep that in mind. Um, I have seen that before where people are starting to organize and they're looking at their manager one way. And then when they get into these meetings with management and it, it, completely changes their perception because they're like, I thought you were the nice manager. I thought you were the good manager. And totally. Yeah. And they completely totally. show them like who they really are. And it's like, how are you working for a nonprofit justice organization, but you don't have those ideals with you. And you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense, but yeah, I, I want to thank both of you guys for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, you taking the time to to talk about this whole situation. And I hope a lot of people can learn from it for sure. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you for listening to us. <laughs> no problem. Thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate you taking the time to listen. I hope you learned something. I hope that you can take some of what they said and apply it to your own workplace and to your own life. Um, yeah. So thanks to them and I will see you next time.